The world is at a pivotal moment. Geopolitical clashes have spawned an intense race for technology leadership. Industries are being reshaped. Globalization is being reimagined. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Kirti Gupta. We're here to break down how geopolitics and technology are impacting our economy, our security, and, and our, our daily, daily lives. lives. This, this is, is Geotech Wars. Wars. everyone to the next episode of the Geotech Wars. It is my pleasure to have our very own Dr. Sujay Shivkumar from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, where he's a senior fellow and a director of the Renewing American Innovation Project, the RAI Project, where I also have the pleasure of working with Sujay very closely on a number of things. Before coming to CSIS, Sujay has two decades of deep experience in policy studies related to U.S. competitiveness and innovation. He spent years leading research agenda on Innovation Policy Forum at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, and real expertise in, you know, what kind of policies we need for supporting advanced manufacturing, small business growth, workforce development, entrepreneurship. So very pertinent to our topic here. Welcome, Sujay. Thank you, Kirti. Very glad to be here and very glad to be here at CSIS, bringing a lot of that experience to bear. I think a lot of these topics are not perhaps as fashionable 20 years <laughs> ago, but they're certainly very much in the news uh, currently. Yeah, isn't it so? And, you know, we've been focusing in this podcast on the critical technologies we've all been you know, hearing about in the news now, right? We've been hearing a lot about AI hear less about chips and semiconductors. We were all so focused on it during the pandemic in terms of mainstream media, but it's really been a focus because it sort of serves as the foundation of a lot of the modern economy and the critical technologies. So our conversation at the Geotech Wars podcast, Sujay, has been a lot about what are the critical technologies U.S. needs to be focusing on to maintain global competitive leadership, because honestly, that's where economic leadership comes from. That's where national security leadership comes from. What challenges we are facing today? We've talked a lot about the innovation policies, the CHIPS Act, and focus on semiconductors. What we haven't yet talked about, and we are really thrilled to have you here, is the importance of skilling, is the importance of workforce. And I know you're an expert in that, and you're also an expert in just how does one create an innovation hub in a country. It doesn't take just one kind of an act or major influx of capital. It's actually a number of things. So maybe we start with that, Sujay, to pick your brain. You know, you've done a lot of research on this. What is an innovation ecosystem? And why is manufacturing so important within that ecosystem? Yeah, so an innovation ecosystem really is a sort of a network of networks. It's a combination of networks relating to education, research, manufacturing, of course, workforce, capital, legal framework, the economic framework, as well as politics and the political frameworks. So all of these, you know, it's a messy combination of networks that uh, overlap and touch each other. And effective ecosystem is one where the connections across these networks are live. And the cooperation across the various actors in this ecosystem are, are also vibrant. And you know, we can talk a little bit more about what it takes to actually build out these connections. But that is actually the, 
goes to the essence of how you build a very strong and vibrant ecosystem. If I can just sort of provide a little bit of context, you know, in terms of this idea of an ecosystem, if you think about the post-World War scenario, you know, the United States was a strong manufacturing economy. We were basically providing goods for reconstruction of Europe and Japan. Those uh, manufacturing networks systems were, in many cases, destroyed during the war. And what the U.S. lacked at that time was much more of a need to invest in research. And so, you know, we have Vannevar Bush talking about the need for an NSF type of organization. And so during that period, we really invested heavily in developing our research networks. So we reinstituted the NSF. We built out the national labs for energy department of defense. We built out the NIH. We developed world-class, world-leading sets of research universities and they produced. I mean, we have arguably the world's strongest research sector here in the United States. But uh, over the many decades, we've also managed to not perhaps put too much emphasis on research and the transfer of that research into an innovative space without understanding the central role of manufacturing. You had asked why is manufacturing so important? Think about any large manufacturing industry, whether it be semiconductors or auto or anything else. The CEO of any of these enterprises is very worried about the research skill talent pool that he or she is pulling into. They're looking at the, the capital networks, they're looking at legal frameworks and the political environment, frankly. So all of these, the common denominator across all of these different networks that make up the innovation system is manufacturing. And so if you, unless you pay attention to the manufacturing part of this ecosystem, a lot of the other parts tend to get disconnected as well. So it's really central that we make sure that manufacturing remains rooted in our economy because it is really central to our innovative capacity. So, you know, that's interesting because we've focused, like I said, so much on semiconductor chips in this podcast. That's the foundation of the modern economy, you know, everything we do processing and compute, <laughs> the power comes from semiconductor chips. And one of the most important takeaways we've been discussing is how so much manufacturing has basically offshored outside of United States to primarily Asia Pacific region that serves as the world's foundry today, the main manufacturing hub. And really from almost 80% of the manufacturing being in United States and Europe just uh, 30 or 40 years ago, we have the equation almost exactly flipped right now. And now we have the Chips and the Science Act. We have other initiatives from the government to try to reshore or friendshore this manufacturing capability back to the United States. There are, I think, lessons to be learned here, not just for semiconductor chips, but also for other critical technology industries that are developing fast. So I'd like to ask you this question. How did we even get to this point? where U.S. lost so much manufacturing capabilities in critical technologies? Well, I think there's sort of two large parts of this. One is domestically, a, a big factor was that firms were incentivized to provide short-term value to shareholders. And one way of doing that was to move manufacturing to places where wages were cheaper and so forth. So companies were incentivized to offshore a lot of their manufacturing. Not only did they get the China price, but also they were basically off the hook in terms of 
investing in the workforce, building the infrastructure, building, modernizing ports, et cetera, et cetera. So those kinds of activities were taken on by the Chinese and we were able to free ride on this for some decades. So that is one part of it. The other part of it is, of course, is that for some decades, geopolitically, at least vis-a-vis East Asia, the world was a quieter place. That's no longer the case, of course. And so now we are sort of forced to a reckoning about the fact that we have really, as you mentioned, hollowed out our manufacturing sector. So, Sujay, the second part has shifted. You're right. I mean, you mentioned two reasons. One is the economic arbitrage, cheaper manufacturing in other countries like China. That's still very much true. The second point you mentioned, you know, Taiwan, South Korea, other parts of East Asia that were quieter, be more peaceful locations. Yeah, that has changed, sure. But let let me unpack the first right now. How are we going to change that? How are we going to change the incentives of companies who still need to respond to their shareholders and take advantage of that arbitrage? Well, I think in part, the incentive structure for some of these firms have to change. I mentioned the shareholder, the incentive structure there, for example. That is an artifact of policy and of the tax system. Those kinds of incentives are structural and those have to change. The other part, of course, is that firms recognize, given the second part of the discussion that I mentioned with regards to the geopolitical instability, too much, I think firms recognize that so much of concentration has occurred in one region, that the value chains and the the supply chains have become very vulnerable to any sort of disruption that can happen in one in one location. So, you know, East Asia, Taiwan is a major producer of semiconductors, for example. And there's the threat of some invasion, of course, but there's also the threat of earthquakes, especially some of the advanced production is all built on an earthquake fault. And so we saw during the pandemic that a relatively minor disruption in the flow of chips had affected the auto industry. And then when you affect the auto industry, you affect the construction industry, et cetera, et cetera, sort of tends to ripple forward. So companies uh, recognize that they really need to diversify, moving from, you know, just in time to just in case. No, I agree. I mean, the diversification of the supply chains out of some critical choke points is not only necessary, it has become a major center of focus after the pandemic. You mentioned exactly the right example with Taiwan producing over 90% of the world's advanced chips under 10 nanometer. (laughs) We are exposing ourselves to any natural disaster, flood, earthquake, not to mention geopolitical events to really halt the modern economy in one fell swoop. But that still brings me to the question. Companies who are looking to diversify would still look for other cheaper locations to offshore manufacturing. So what is it that the United States can do to bring this manufacturing back to reshore? Well, I think, you know, you mentioned the CHIPS Act and a lot of the activities that are being spurred by the CHIPS Act are things that we need to do in terms of clearing the clutter away, in terms of making manufacturing much more economically viable and attractive in our shores. I mean, the key is not to, the opposite of globalization is not complete domestication. It is to make sure that the United States remains a major hub of manufacturing, of innovation, one that has domestic resonance, but also connected globally. So it's not a one or the other type of thing. What the CHIPS Act is actually doing is forcing a lot of discussion on issues like permitting, for example. The federal permitting legislation is from 1970. 
and it hasn't really been updated or even used because we haven't really been concentrating on really building manufacturing on a large scale. Uh, so like fabs and foundries. Exactly, like fabs and so forth. So a lot of the discussion now is how do you streamline all of this? It's not a question of environment or manufacturing. It is, a, you know, both can be reconciled, but it requires predictability. It requires simplification of processes. All of that has to be figured out. The other part also, the other part, of course, is uh, it was central to the issue that you mentioned at the outset, which is skills. Manufacturing moves to where the skills are. And we haven't really been underinvesting, frankly, in our skilled workforce. And we have a system that has sort of grown willy-nilly. The incentives are all over the place, and we can talk about that. But so a lot of the focus is now on making sure that we have the support mechanisms, both at the high skill level as well as in the skilled technical workforce, to provide the fuel for the reshoring or recalibration of our manufacturing systems. So the investment in skills from the Chips and Science Act, those kinds of investments are the solution in your view? Yeah, I think a lot of the focus now is moving into you know, how do we build the skills that are necessary. So you, what you see is a lot of the corporations who are trying to build fabs, trying to put together coalitions in the Midwest and elsewhere, connecting community colleges, vocational schools, universities, rethinking about the context within apprenticeships can work, encouraging state lawmakers to re-incentivize community colleges and vocational schools to focus more on outputs in terms of placement rather than purely on filling seats and on focus on enrollment. Because if you focus on enrollment, for example, the incentive is to create a sort of a cafeteria menu of options for students within the community college. Often students and workers are not that well informed about what the industry, local industry is asking in terms of skills. And so they kind of get lost in the process, whereas a well-aligned system, and there are great examples of this in different parts of the country. The community college is incentivized by the state to focus on outputs. The community college then gets in touch with the local industry. The local industry says we need skills in X, Y, and Z, and we will provide you know internships and apprenticeships in those areas. They connect with the local university. The local university says we have professors who can enrich the research and the skills training in some of these new emerging areas. Community colleges can then send some of their students to the universities. Universities that are providing engineering training can then use the technical resources, the equipment that may well, for example, be in in a community college. So what you're talking about is, again, ecosystem-wise, a densening of the connective tissue across training landscape. And then that connects to the manufacturing landscape. Interesting. So you're implying that the market itself isn't always the most efficient in matching the demand and the supply of the, of where the skilled labor is needed to the skilling of the of our. Yeah, so you know, if you think about uh, again for the past uh, since the Second World War, really, we've had this discussion of market versus state. I think that has all the intellectual rigor of uh, there was an old beer commercial where the light beer, whether it tasted good, whether it tasted good or was less filling. And whether it's market or state, it very much depends on what the collective activity is and what the challenges of cooperation are within that collective activity. So, and the, the challenges are, are varied. In some cases, contexts are varied. So in some cases, it's a collective, it's a common pool problem. In some cases, one person is asked to provide a, a public good. In other cases, there may be an information asymmetry. So the challenge of making those connections requires crafting institutions, crafting public-private partnerships that bridge these challenges of cooperation. 
And again, the more dense you have, the more solutions you have to these types of partnerships and institutions that bridge different parts of these networks, the more robust your innovation system is. And so it's a matter of understanding what the incentives are, where the misalignments are, why the misalignments are there in the first place. Is it an information problem? Is it a problem of trust? Is it a problem of providing public goods? I mean, there's a huge literature, and you're an economist as well, there's a huge literature on different types of, of cooperation problems. So it requires a little bit more diagnosis rather than just saying that, oh, we will we'll have a, only a market or only a state uh, solution. Innovation policy has to move beyond or let's just fund R&D and the rest of it will take care of itself. I see. Because there are a lot of these kinds of challenges across the networks. And a lot of those have to be addressed either usually through hybrid mechanisms. So it's neither often state or market, but uh, some combination of both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some combination of both. And so, Jay, you know, this is something I've learned from you about the skills gap or a skills deficit that has been building and growing in the United States for some time. One of the reasons being this loss of manufacturing activity and leadership. Can you talk a little bit about that? What does that skills gap or deficit look like? How big is it? What has been the real impact on the U.S. economy? I think we have a major issue with both the high skill. And when you talk about skills gap, there's a high skill issue. And what used to be called the middle skill but which has since been better branded as the skilled technical workforce. So there are sort of two challenges there. The high skill challenge, we have, as I mentioned, a world-class research system. Students around the world want to come to the United States to study, to do advanced studies and research. So our issue is basically retaining them. There's been this long recommendation from the National Academy of Sciences that we ought to clip the green card. People have been founding that until they've been blue in the face for a long time. That's much more of a federal issue, but unfortunately, it's an immigration issue as well. And for some unknown reason that has been, you know, for example, unknown reason joined on the hip with the illegal immigration issue, and that seems to be intractable. So we are, in fact, at taxpayer expense, educating these people only to send them back to their home countries. In many cases, those countries are competitors in emerging technologies, emerging industries. So there, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We should and are investing in STEM research, bringing minorities, uh, bringing girls into, get them interested in STEM at an early age. But that's a generational, much more of a generational approach. So that's an important approach as well. But getting more American-born students involved and interested in STEM is one part of it, but it's not going to solve the challenge in the, in the very short term. The other part of it is, I mentioned to you, this workforce challenge, and that is much more in the in, a, in our federal system, a state and local issue. So what you see is a sort of a patchwork. In some, some states and localities, you really have a very dysfunctional system. In others, as I mentioned earlier, when you have uh, some leading industries or firms who are suddenly motivated to act, as in the case of chips pushing the semiconductor industry to be more proactive in in many of our country's regions, they are putting pressure on local legislatures, uh, policymakers. They are connecting the community colleges with the with the fabs and making these kind of connections and aligning a lot of the incentives that have that are not uh, pointing in the same direction. So you have these sort of mixture of approaches, but we need both. I mean, you need both the high skill and the skill technical. And what is encouraging, at least at the local level, is a much more pragmatic, less ideological approach. I think it's uh, it's also important for us as a nation to make sure that more Americans are connected to the innovation 
economy. The innovation economy is what is going to be the major dynamic driving our growth and has important repercussions, as you mentioned earlier, for our national security and competitiveness. But a lot of Americans are disenfranchised, if you will, digitally. They don't see the connection to between their contribution and their stake in the innovation economy. And so a lot of those what's happening at the state and local level is, I think, really important to make sure that Americans are, understand what the opportunities are, understand what sort of approaches that they can take to connect into the vocational schools for the jobs that are being created in manufacturing and other, and other spaces. In many cases, there's a lack of knowledge. As I mentioned to you, often these are, you can categorize them as issues of motivation or knowledge. And we have the technology today to actually help bridge a lot of this information. You know, if you want to go to a, a new address, what we do is we type the address into our phone, Google Map or what have you, and it gives you turn-by-turn directions in a sense because it uses both user data and aggregated data to tell you turn left, turn right, go around this this part of the highway because it's congested and it takes you to your destination. And there is new software that uh, platforms that are available today and that are being actually actively used both by local governments and by semiconductor companies across that actually does this uh, for the workforce. So there's a nonprofit called NIIT, I believe. You know, they were funded by NSF and the Department of Labor to produce this. So these kind of solutions are there. They're getting traction, which is getting a, a very, very encouraging sign. Yeah, thank you, Sujay. I just want to ask you, how big is the skills gap? I mean, should we really be concerned? Aren't we still in a leadership position in terms of the talent pool that we have for these critical technologies we need to leave in, whether it's semiconductors or AI? or Don't we have the most advanced workforce? If you look at, say, uh, design, I think Qualcomm has opened a design center in India. They announced it just last week because that's where the skills are, the high-end skills are. And I think there are at least 70,000, 90,000 middle-skilled workers that are required immediately to staff some of these fabs that are being uh, built today, according to some of these companies that are building them. So there is a skill shortage. And if we don't have the skills, you don't have the industry. And if you don't have the industry, your innovation system is going to start a decay. So, you know, solving the skills is actually pretty central, you know, as my as the title of my program bears, uh, Renewing American Innovation. And can you explain why is there a skill shortage? How big is it? How critical is it? So we moved manufacturing offshore for a number of decades. And along with the China price, we also got off the hook in terms of having to train workers. So we haven't really emphasized at a policy level or on a practical level, the need to train workers because the, you know, in a sense, uh, other countries were investing in manufacturing. China and other countries realized that in order to be manufacturing powerhouses, they needed to train their workforce. They were making the investments. That left left the U.S. corporations and U.S. policymakers off the hook for decades. So this is something that we are playing very rapid catch-up on currently. And so that is the history behind it. And that's why we are now in a position of having to very urgently address some of these policy issues. Thank you, Sujay. So I think for me, the big takeaway is that we can invest a lot in capital and have fabs and foundries and other kinds of subsidies in place for trying to play catch up in technology leadership on reshoring of manufacturing. But really, we can't lose the sight of the skills gap 
and the skills shortage. And as you are describing, you know, it took us a generation to lose a lot of skill. It's going to take us a generation to build it back. Is that a fair summary? Well, I'm hoping it won't take a generation because I think the loss was a gradual one. And I think we didn't realize exactly what we had done to ourselves. But I think if we get our act together, it should not take a generation to reskill ourselves. We have the capacities, we have the, uh, the technologies, and we can draw together you know, AI and other capabilities to make sure that we have workforce that we need today and tomorrow. And so it's a matter of, in some ways, political will and also to understand and understanding what the problem is. I think the first step is, of course, diagnosing and defining what the challenge is and then providing the impetus to, get, to go out and solve it. Yeah. Thank you, Sujay. I mean, this really tees up our next episode where we want to dive in a little bit deeper into what are the key areas in which we are facing, technology areas in which we are facing chronic and critical skill shortage, and what are the policy tools we have available to us to be able to address them, hopefully in less than a generation. So thank you for teeing this up for us. We really appreciate your insights in this and we hope to have you back soon. Likewise, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Keith. Thank you for tuning into Geotech Wars. You can listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Don't forget to rate and review us. Until next time.